Hello, everyone. This is um, Claudia Murgan, the host of the Spiritually Inspired uh, Podcast. And uh, my guest um, today uh, is a Canadian, uh, Victoria Lors. Uh, Victoria is a wild church pastor, an eco-spiritual director, and co-founder of several transformation focus organizations focused on the integration of nature and spirituality. She feels most alive when collaborating with mystery and kindred spirits to create opportunities for people to remember themselves back into intimate, sacred relationship with the rest of the living world. Victoria is co-founder and director of Seminary of the Wild, which is focused on a deep dive year-long eco-ministry certificate program for all those who feel called by earth and spirit to restore the great conversation. She's also the author of the book, Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us into the Sacred. Victoria, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me today. Thank you, Claudia. Actually, my, my son lives probably about an hour from you in Ontario, but I live in Washington in the United States. Oh, sorry, my, my mistake. I thought that no you worries. live in, in BC. Yes, uh, I, my son went to college there, so I feel connected, but not quite a citizen. <laughs> it's a beautiful um, state. In fact, I have a friend who lives in, uh, in Seattle, and uh, he tells me, uh, tells me stories about the ancient forests in, in that mm -hmm. state and uh, Mount uh, Rainier. And uh, again, wonderful, wonderful, mystical stories about uh, his encounters in, in, those, uh, in those forests. Mm, I'd love to hear those stories. There are definitely, you can feel the sacredness of this place. Although the whole point of my work is that all places are sacred, even if they've been uh, damaged and covered up by concrete, it is still a sacred relationship that we can maintain with the rest of the natural world. Yes, I'm on, on, of the same uh, <clears throat> vein and thinking. Uh, but let's start with... Um, how your eco-spiritual um, journey um, was initiated uh, for you? Well, I, I kind of used to have a story that began just a few uh, years ago in my adult life, which I can tell. But when I, when I started writing this book, I realized, wow, the connection and the invitation into that deeper relationship with the rest of the natural world started much younger. And I... Um, I remember a place that every place I moved to, we moved a lot when I was growing up, and every place we moved, I would always find a little, like, sort of secret spot for myself. And uh, in particular, I remember when I was in high school, uh, I had a little place that overlooked the, the canyon, and I would, it was secret, I didn't tell anybody about it, I went there to be and think and uh sometimes journal but mostly just to sit there and I realized now looking backwards that that was the beginning of my um, experience of of the easiest way or the most accessible way to connect with the numinous or the sacred or God is immersing myself in in the natural world and then um, I became a pastor out of um, out of seminary but I before I started working in the church, I wrote a piece for evangelical churches that was called Let the Earth Be Glad. And it was basically saying, it was like a polemic saying, no, this isn't a liberal agenda. This isn't, a, you know, paganism. This is deeply rooted within the Christian tradition, within the Christian uh, sacred stories, within the Christian spiritual, you know, journey. And it was sent to 50,000 evangelical churches um, and that so that could also be called <laughs> an initiatory um, but then it was after working within the church for several years I left for seven years completely and in those seven years I started a, uh, a youth nonprofit um, around the climate crisis with my son who lives up there in Ontario and um, and in that time you know we started Alec, my son, became sort of like what Greta be, became later. He was he was kind of like Greta 15, 20 years ago and speaking at places all over uh, this continent and in Europe about the crisis and the and doing um, empowerment kind of speeches and uh, organizing for youth to get involved in the climate movement. 
the interesting thing is that both of those journeys within the church as a pastor and within the climate movement, both of them led to burnout. And it was in that place of burnout and emptiness that I was able to recognize that keeping those two parts of my life and our life as a species separate is um, non-sustainable and actually necessarily leads to burnout because, you know, we, we can neither advocate for a healthy planet while we're not deeply intimately connected with the rest of the natural world as kindred relationship nor can we uh, maintain a spiritually viable life no matter what tradition we're, we're from being disconnected from the natural world and yet our culture is so deeply disconnected that um, it necessarily leads to that to that burnout we can't live with these two parts of our life separated. So recognizing that um, is how I began to experiment with and explore and question why is this, why is this so separated and what can we do to uh, reconnect, which is actually the definition, the etymological definition of the word religion is religios, like a ligament, reconnection. And humans apparently uh, need to create spiritual practices, to create religion, to remind us to reconnect, because we tend, I think, to disconnect. Yes, so many things to, to unpack. And in fact, my two interviews with, uh, and recent interviews with uh, Benjamin uh, Castello, the director of uh, New World Together, mm. are uh, based uh, on uh, the um, climate change and how we, we live on Earth and, and what's next and the challenges we, we have as, uh, as human uh, species. And uh, I was amazed to see how deep the discussion uh, went on, on two different uh, <clears throat> sessions. And that's why we had to uh, have another interview after mm -hmm. the first one, because the discussion was unfinished. Um, there are very, and in fact, a lot of aspects and nuances of how we, we live our lives. Mm -hmm. But for now, I want to go back to that story, that special place of yours, which uh, was the um, Baranka Wall. Do you think that kids today are removed from having such a, a place while living in a suburb? Um, I mean, it's, it's always been the norm <laughs> to be disconnected in urban cities, especially. Um, but I grew yeah. up in suburbs. So, and my children grew up mostly in suburbs, but there's ways to connect. You know, we had one little um, oak, um, avocado tree in our yard when I lived in Southern California. And my, my daughter knew this tree so well when she was little and she would climb into the tree and spend her whole day in relationship with this tree. She named it Leonardo. <laughs> and she would set up, uh, you know, like little, little spy headquarters to look down on people and, uh, and I would watch her from the window and I'd watch her sort of enter into conversation with the tree. You know, she would be talking out loud and she knew that tree in an, in an intimate way. And um, right before we moved from that house, the landlord uh, cut back the tree. You know, I, I get that we need to prune trees, but this was like violent. It was down to a stump and she was devastated. And um, so I, I know that it is uh, more difficult now than I'm sure it was 100 years ago to be deeply connected with the trees and the, and the beings of our place. But I also am seeing a resurgence and I'm also seeing that more and more people are awakening to that deep connection. And I think children come from that place of connection. And so it's basically they unlearn it through our culture. And so uh, there is a movement among parents to allow children uh, space, even in their own yards, even to have uh, even a park, even to have a relationship with the spiders in the shower, you know, <laughs> rather than treating them as something to immediately, you know, remove all vestiges of, of reminders that we are, that we are a species deeply interconnected with the rest of nature. We aren't separate from nature. So yes and no. <laughs> Yes, as uh, you know, Richard Louv and others have pointed out, the, there's a crisis of disconnection for our children as well. But if we learn to listen to our children and, and allow their natural curiosity and their natural 
sense of imagination that is not really a fantasy. It's more like a reality that they know that connect, that deep connection. They come out knowing it. It's up to us adults to um, encourage that, that deepening connection. Yes, and I usually give um, the example of the Avatar movie by James Cameron mm -hmm. in order to um, show the, the violence um, and the disconnect between us and, and nature. And do you think, based on your experience, that the moviegoers understand the symbolism behind the movie or they just look at the uh, edutainment or entertainment part of it? Uh, because if they understand the symbolism, they might apply it in their daily life. Yeah, easy. I mean, it, and it's the same answer. Some people, yes, <laughs> absolutely understood um, what that movie was was uh, an allegory for uh, the way our life is and the consequences of what has happened. You know, when you cry at that scene with the, the tree being torn down, that is a scene that happens every day. Um, in fact, for my son, uh, when he went to college up in British Columbia at Quest University, he saw the forest around the university that he had fallen in love with, that he knew intimately. One day after a class, he ran out to his place and there were armed guards at the trailhead and he had to watch his forest be deforested and hear the trauma of all of the birds and the creatures rushing to this one little area that was still safe. Um, and, and literally heard the groaning of these trees and the creatures in this, in this violence. And it's that same kind of violence that's happening all over. In fact, living up in the Pacific Northwest, it's actually a little bit more painful because you can see it. You can see the sort of um, trees uh, lined up almost like a graveyard in the, in the lumber mill areas. And you can see the areas that are deforested. Whereas when I lived in Los Angeles, it's so covered up by, uh, by concrete and buildings and parking lots that you can easily forget. And so I think what this movement is, is an unforgetting, a remembering, of, you know, which is a remembering ourselves back into that hole that we've never been disconnected from. We've just, our perception has put us, um, you know, into that place where Carl Sagan talks about this delusion that, that we have a privileged position within the universe. It's not real. We don't. And we're finding that out with, you know, the pandemic, with the climate crisis that's impacting everybody now. And even with the, the kind of violence in wars that are happening that are that are funded by and fueled by, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry and other and other um, con consumptive uh, technologies that that make a few people very, very rich and make the rest of us sort of dependent on a certain way of living that is destructive. And so it's all so deeply interconnected. Um, I know I got off of your question there, but- No, it's fine. I mean, I, yeah, they're connected. And I know I wrote a story once and uh, I mentioned that every time we, um, we cut down a tree, we lose some of um, human, um, humanity's history. Because yes. there is so much knowledge embedded in, in that tree that we want mm -hmm. to accept or not. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, several amazing books uh, written about uh, these old forests which are being cut down and uh, turned into lumber. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, I mean, I know you, I know other pastors that walk away from the traditional indoor churches, the same as, as you did. Um, they're unsatisfied with... Uh, on anyway, politics or the way, uh, you know, the church presented certain realities um, and maybe even historical discoveries. Um, what determined you to make such a radical move? Yeah, it was a um, process again. It wasn't one thing, but over, um, over that beginning with the piece that I researched uh, right out of seminary, where I recognize theologically, this is something that's deeply embedded in our, in our own tradition. And this, this being a deep interconnection with the rest of the natural world as, as spiritual reality, spiritual and physical reality. Um, and I began to, um, you know, I worked in that early in my career, kind of tried to bring it in a bit when I was a pastor way back then. 
and then ended up leaving the church altogether for about seven years. And in that time is when I started the nonprofit in the climate uh, movement. And then after that, in that place of burnout, I did go back and work in the church as an associate pastor for a while, part-time. Um, and I began to look into my own tradition even more deep, deeply and recognize that every single spiritual leader within both of the testaments of, um, of our sacred stories were drawn into the wilderness at a pivotal time in their history, as well as a pivotal time of their own leadership. And it wasn't, it was something that as a pastor, I used to kind of spiritualize or metaphorize and say, you know, going into a wilderness time or something. And I started to realize, wait a minute, there's something real about this. There's something about the soil and the ferns and the, and the clouds um, and the insects that are part of this call into wilderness. And at that time, I, I, I was uh, alerted by a friend of mine who's uh, Israeli and, and told me that um, in Hebrew, the word for wilderness that's used over 300 times in, in the Old Testament is the word midbar, which is a derivative of the word dabar, which is, which is a word that means speaking. And so bar midbar means the organ which speaks. In fact, it's the first definition in the lexicon. The second definition is wilderness. And so it's like, it just kind of was like this, boom, this, this, there's something here that, that, that when one is called, when there is a time of great crisis, like right now, the people who are following, who are listening, the people who are listening are called into the wilderness for reasons, <laughs> for reasons of listening and remembering who we are and the role we are here to play. And our identity is deeply rooted in deep connection with the whole. And, um, and so, and I'm, and I'm, I'm observing and listening and hearing that there's more and more people that are hearing that call. Like even in my bio, it's like hearing the call, not just from spirit into service to the world, but from the world herself, from, from the earth herself into service. And um, so I'm seeing more and more people, you, you know, our Seminary of the Wild programs are about that, about uh, those, those people that have felt that seed and knowing that they're called into this movement in some way that's very unique to their place, as well as to their own, um, their own gifts and their own community. Yes, as you said, this is not for, for everyone. Not everyone will hear the, the call. Yeah. Um, because first of all, you have to be willing to to step on that <clears throat> um, narrow spiritual path, um, which will enlarge if you start walking it. Um, and and then will you will have to um, pay attention to what comes back after you send the spiritual signal out into the world, mm -hmm. and it will bounce back maybe with a new different message, which will open up your spiritual horizon ah, i love that definition so much thank you for that it's beautiful <laughs> that's you. it it's and and those who are you know it's like those who are called have you know are it's a privilege into to be called into that call and, and how we use that privilege there's a responsibility because not everyone does see it and not everyone will see it but those but there's more and more people that are feeling the, the um, mounting anxiety, and it's more than about our own personal, you know, sort of journey. Um, it's, it's something in the collective and, and a collective larger than even our species. And so more and more people are, are needing to understand this and, and the church isn't, isn't the place to go. And so it's people who hear that call that know that they're calling um, to exactly what you said to to that narrow path, I call it edge walkers. We are edge walkers. That that narrow path really does, like the way you say it, is how I've sort of visualized it. It's like it's not just like, oh, I can't fall off this edge. I'm the edge between, you know, sort of a lot of different edges. But it's not just walking this narrow and lonely path. It is a bit lonely because it's very countercultural. Um, but also, the more we can listen and engage in that. Uh, conversation engage in that relationship sending things out and allowing things to bounce back i love that but the more we do that we're expanding the whole you know it's like those edge walkers can expand the whole in a um 
you know, rather than being something rigid, it's something that has elasticity. Yes, and for me, it was a very, um, it was different, especially 2021, because we made a major move. We left Canada, moved to Panama. So mm-hmm. I was able to be in nature on the beach and in the, in the jungle, pretty much, um, several hours a day. And uh, I had no uh, idea that we're going to come back to Canada and spend the winter here. Mm-hmm. So coming from 30 All degrees <laughs> to minus 20 or minus 25, yeah, it should have kept me in uh, indoors, but somehow I have a, a desire to go out, no matter how much, uh, how many, uh, how less degrees are outside, like doesn't matter that the temperature, I mm-hmm. still have to go outside and I go for 20, 25 minutes walk and I'll go back um, in, in the house. But again, I have that desire. Uh, I'm not thinking twice. I just dress up and go. And Beautiful. it has to do with, you know, a calling, I think. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And it's a spiritual practice. You know, it's like once you start doing it, it you realize uh, you need to keep doing it. Or like, you know, you start running. You know, when you when you become a runner, it, it hurts to not run. <laughs> yes. uh, when you become, become a meditator, it's uncomfortable to, to not meditate. It's, it is a spiritual practice. I think it's interesting that there's so many wild churches in the Toronto area who meet all winter long, you know, somebody in the, in the Southern United States is like, oh my gosh, it's raining a little today. We can't be outside. But what are the consequences of being this disconnected from our place, being this disconnected from weather, from reality of seasons, having, you know, sort of this delusion of control that we can control our environment, which we can in our houses. We can turn on the heater, we can turn on the air conditioner, uh, we can, you know, not go, not go anywhere. <laughs> we can choose to stay comfortable. And I think there's a, there's a spiritual loss when we buy into that delusion and, and coming out of that delusion is quite a, takes a practice, a spiritual practice, like going outside, just, just walking outside, no matter what, every day. Yes. Uh, Victoria, you mentioned the, um, let, the Earth Be Glad uh, <clears throat> brochure or kit you, you put together. But in your book, you also mentioned that when you send it out, at that time you were working for World Vision, if I'm uh, correct. Right. And there is some conflict of interest because one of the main sponsors <laughs> was a timber company. How do you think that we can remove this type of conflicts uh, when organizations like World Visions are sponsored by the same culprits who are doing the the harm in the first place talk about um (laughs) this is our whole culture right i just heard on uh this morning bill mckibben talking about the um, conflict in ukraine and russia that russia's um economy is fueled by their uh gas and oil exports that the United States is unwilling to uh, limit that because it might inconvenience our, you know, driving habits. You know, it's like, it's gonna be a little uncomfortable. We have that, our, our addiction to comfort is a real problem. And so this isn't just the corporates uh, who are the corporate greed that's at the core of this. It's all of us, we're all, we're, we're all in this, um, this delusion together, including self. I mean, I, I have a car, I live in a house, I have a heater going right now. And so how do we live in this, um, this discord, internal discord of knowing that what I'm doing, how I'm living is part of the problem and yet fighting against it. It's, I, I wish I had a good answer to that. I think it increased awareness and it takes a lot of courage to really step out and begin to live in a different way. Like, uh, you know, my son moved and married a, a young woman in, in, in uh, Ontario and they live on some acres and they've built their little tiny house and they have their friends with their tiny houses. They're sort of beginning to live in the way we've been talking about for years. People my age are, you know, all of us say that that's how we want to live, but we just keep talking about it. We haven't taken the steps to actually um, really deeply be beyond, you know, getting solar panels or some other consumption kind of um, answer, technology answer. It's going to take something that feels like a sacrifice. 
just as as releasing all privileges that aren't really ours feels like a sacrifice, but it actually isn't. It's it's restoring our um, deep connection with the whole in a way that will actually be more um, uh, life giving. And and I think you said something like this in one of your books. That, um, you know, it's just there's it's it's replacing this this false uh, happiness for a true deep interconnected joy of living in relationship with other humans as well as the more than humans in a way that is um, is restorative and life enhancing and I can't even come up with big enough words <laughs> um, but it's a challenge you know I, I, I don't know your journey um, but I suspect maybe some of your decision to move to Panama was might have been motivated in that deeper connection. There were different uh, reasons. Um, I, I won't mention them here. I mentioned them on uh, other uh, smaller videos, which I published on my YouTube channel. Um, but the same reason which pushed me out of the country kind of brought me back. Uh, but from a different uh, angle, things um, change in a very um, short period of time, again, unexpectedly. Uh, but I, uh, I keep my, uh, ear, my ear to the ground and see what's moving and what the, the next move would be for, for the family. <clears throat> but I also tend to, to go towards a self-sustainable um, homestead. Um, and we have friends who, who bought large uh, acreage and build their home. And uh, there are, you know, thoughts about joining them or buying something separate and, you know, grow our own food uh, because we know things um, will change at the societal uh, level and we have to, to adapt. At least, you know, for our family, the mindset is there. We haven't uh, moved forward towards this goal. We, we, we hope that we were able to do that in Panama, but again, as I said, things changed. Um, but the mindset is there. And I think we are fluid enough to, to adapt. Yeah, it's, it's just so fascinating how many people are awakening to that uh, and, and feeling into not only how life-giving it, it can possibly be, but also the consequences, you know, like, like it is more work. It is more, you know, it's going to cost money. It's going to cost maybe you can't work in your same job. You know, it's like there's going to be a major shift of our whole lifestyle. And it's one thing to talk about it. <laughs> and then it's another thing to actually begin to take those steps. And I think the, the world is, is helping us. I love how you said just now to keep, you keep your ear to the ground. You know, I, that's, that's a great um, sort of metaphor, but it's also real. There's something uh, relational about that, that as we keep our uh, communication or our, our listening and our uh, conversation um, alive with the more than human others, that, that we are in this together. I mean, it sounds so kind of woo-woo to actually say it out loud, um, but, but it's real. I just keep, I keep deepening into this reality of like the trees, the birds, all these others have invested interest as well and have some wisdom that we've been disconnected from that keeping our ear to the ground is actually something we can do and ideas will come you know like even within technology I love the biomimicry movement you know that how do we learn from nature and uh, nature's kind of un I don't even know how to you're gonna have to cut this out because my brain just stopped like <laughs> synapsing because it's it feels like something is still emerging um something that is still emerging that we're all part of as we start to take steps to um to create these spiritual practices to ask these questions about us of ourselves to challenge ourselves and take the steps the rest of the world is collaborating in that i mean i kind of almost feel like the the covid pandemic is part of it Yes. Um, and, um, you know, I think this uh, mindset comes through education. And I found it very hard to change the mindset of my own children. Because if it's not taught in school, it's pretty much not 
validated in any way. So usually I have three heads when I touch on subjects which are not taught in school. And as a, as a parent, I really have a hard time, uh, you know, transmuting these ideas from my experience into their uh, reality. How do you deal with younger generation? How do you suggest to deal with such uh, educational aspect of our lives? Right. Yeah, it is. It is. Um teaching values that are not validated by the rest of our culture and explicitly in our, in our education system. Um, you know, people ask me, used to ask me that a lot when uh, my son and I were leading our, our climate nonprofit and they would say to me, you know, Alec, my son would be out there talking. He's, he's a great public speaker and talking about what, what young people can do and, um, what the crisis is and that there is hope. Um, and also that there's, that this is a real huge crisis. And, um, and, and people would ask me, you know, I'm trying to get my kids involved. How did you do it? And I was like, well, I didn't do anything except really listen to his, it was something that was ignited within him that, um, that I just encouraged and supported. Um, (laughs) And especially when it was a teenager, people would ask me that, you know, how do you get him to do this? And I'm like, do you not have a teenager? You don't get teenagers to do anything um, that they don't want to. So I wish I had more, um, something more helpful <laughs> other than starting from where they, what, what they are um, truly passionate about. And spending more time, like you, like you did. I bet that that experience of moving to Panama, even for even for a short time, is something that impacted them. Those that ability to be outside, to be connected with the with the sand and the water, and just to be there. Like the 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 natural world is the teacher. <laughs> the natural world is the is the preacher. <laughs> yes. And and so just allowing that, or creating and inviting that space and that. Uh, and, and being as unstructured as possible, it's helpful as well. Yes, I mean, their biggest challenge there, especially for my younger son, was to live in the same room with uh, a gecko. That was a very <laughs> funny experience. And he had some sleepless nights because, you know, the gecko is a big, ferocious uh, being. <laughs> but uh, in the end, Did he ever again, get to a place of uh, befriending <laughs> After a while, he realized that uh, this uh, gecko is not so dangerous. But we had iguanas knocking on our uh, window, you know, trying to get in. Big iguanas, and uh, that is <clears throat> it was a very interesting uh, in- experience. And see the birds coming to get the fruits of a plant exactly when they were ripe. Not before, no after, they knew exactly the time. They will come in pairs, fighting over the small uh, fruits um, and flying away, coming back for two, three days while the, the plant, the, the fruits were ripe. After that, peace and quiet. And Beautiful. then waiting for the next cycle. They know everything. Yes. And just pointing that out to your children. Just observing to yourself, like, look at that. I think they they listen, whether they want to engage, uh, depending on their age (laughs) or not, they listen and they hear that. You know, the more that I've become aware since my children are, you know, in their 20s, I kind of fantasize, oh, I wish I I would have known this when they were younger. So, um, in so another shock, place. yeah, and another <laughs> shock was like maybe 70 meters away from the house we lived in was a lake with uh, alligators and mm-hmm. turtles and fish. So we went there almost every week, you know, feeding the, the fish with a little bit of uh, um, bread and, and to see this, um, the, the wildlife so close to you, like yes. almost touching them. It was unbelievable. Yes. There's something about that that's so important, even if, you know, so I do believe that even if you live in an urban area, you still can connect with the wild wind and the stars and the 
dandelions between the cracks, but there's something real about being able to be immersed like that. When, when Alec, my son was two, we were in, um, we were in Belize in, and, uh, and there was all of these little huts that we stayed in that had like open, kind of like open areas where all the frogs and everybody got in. Um, and there were planks where everybody walked from, from little, you know, tent to tent because of all the poisonous snakes that were there. You know, and this is two-year-old. It doesn't want to hold my hand anymore. <laughs> These are slippery because it's the rainforest. It was quite a challenge. But once we saw a boa constrictor in the wild, and it was underneath the plank, so the plank's about three feet off the ground. The boa constrictor is so fat and huge that it comes up to the top of the plank, but it was so huge we couldn't see its head. And so we were able to bend down and touch a wild boa constrictor. And, you know, my son was too young to actually remember that, but he actually does remember uh, something. It was like so significant that we were able to touch this gigantic snake in the wild. Um, you know, we didn't feel scared because it was just too big and it's not going to just wrap all around us quickly, but we could have been <laughs> uh, scared. But in this, in this circumstance, it was such a gift. And to hear all the howler monkeys that sound like dinosaurs and the, and the millions of of, of whatever those bugs were that were so loud it was like I can imagine that's what it's kind of like in Panama just that primordial kind of sense of another time yes yes interesting <clears throat> Victoria the indigenous did all their you know spiritual rituals in nature mm. how that change over time and why we needed bigger churches and cathedrals I think if all of us go back enough uh, generations, we'll find that all of our ancestors were uh, engaged deeply in their spiritual practices, embedded in earth, uh, earth-based practices, because that's what because that's what it means to be human. We're part of of this whole. It means that's what our spirituality means. Um, I I blame you know the shortcut that I blame that uh, gradual disconnection. I blame it on empire. On the, there's something in the human species that just wants to dominate and, uh, and colonize and want more, more power. And so our, our, our spiritual traditions have been caught up in that. And I can speak to my own tradition in, Christ, in, the, in Christianity. It was very intentional and very gradual. And once... Um, once Christianity became a state religion in around the fourth century, it became, it, it became not just colluded with the state uh, and the empire, but became sort of like a weapon of mass destruction of the empire, that religion, using religion to uh, control the masses um, is just one of the tactics of, of valiant, powerful men. And... Um, and so it's been distorted. It's been distorted over the centuries. And, um, you know, like Roman architecture, early Roman architecture, even the houses were built so that the windows were all faced inside a little controlled uh, courtyard. And so all of the windows faced only inside. The, the, the na nature was a very controlled garden. And there were no windows facing the outside. And so the churches took on this kind of architecture, where if there were windows at all, they'd be covered by stained glass, still could be controlled by the church, the stories. And so what that says, if not explicitly, definitely implicitly, is what is holy is inside here. What is outside there is wild and scary and not controllable and therefore, you know, <laughs> not acceptable and not sacred. And, um, and so that's why I, this movement of wild churches, it, it is a really important part to not be inside of a building, to be creating, uh, recreating and remembering spiritual practices that reconnect us to the sacred that is in all things. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, there's a understanding at least that Christ is in all things. And Nothing has been made except with that, with that relationship, that Christ relationship. And yet we don't act like that's real. <laughs> you know, so it's not doing some crazy new age, you know, pagan thing 
Although pagan is just a word that means those people out there in the countryside who are too connected with the earth, that, that empire created this severance. Um, but it's actually these, these spiritual practices that reconnect us. We need, we need to do dramatic things like not be inside of a building, like go for a walk when it's, you know, 20 below <laughs> zero, um, like, like choose to spend time and, and sit at the, at the lake's edge and just be there without agenda, <laughs> without thinking about how, how we're going to use this tree, but how we're going to, how we are in relationship with this tree. Yes. And I'd like to go a little bit deeper on uh, one of your um, statements. Uh, you said that your personal spirituality is rooted in Christ tradition and not Christianity. Why? Um, I mean, I think they could be sort of the same. They're just some words are worth uh, keeping and redefining. Some words are sort of too uh, distorted to try. <laughs> so for me, um, for some people, the word Christ is too distorted for them to try to, to reclaim it. Um, for me, the word Christ or the word church, putting together with, with the word wild, kind of redefines it right there. But, um, but for me, the word Christ is something much bigger than the last name of Jesus. It's, it's a uh, really ancient word that, you know, a lot of people have written, written books over the last few few decades in particular but about that that this you know sort of emergent christ or uh the cosmic christ that matthew fox wrote about or um richard Rohr's book from uh, i think 2021 the universal christ that christ is the is a name for this sacred that is in embedded in this in life and um, embedded in all things and is the relationship between all things that that is the presence of of the christ and jesus stepped into that into that christ uh you know what do we call it an archetype the christ energy the christ reality um so it's a state it of being pretty that. much yeah it's a it's a state of reality it's a state of of consciousness i guess i don't i i can't yes, define it yeah. you're more of a philosopher than i am um but so to me, but the word Christian has been just so uh, distorted to me. You know, there's people that call themselves Christian who um, who engage in things that are very much against what I think Christ and Jesus was all about. Um, and so it, it it has become a word that's difficult for me to um, identify with. Victoria, there is a sensitive question, which I would like to ask you just because you're a pastor and uh, I ask other guests as well, but I would like to know your, your feedback uh, and your perception of this. Some people don't like when um, they hear that Jesus was their savior. What's the, the beef with that concept and, and that approach? Because I also am trying to um, clear my own thoughts related to this concept. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert in Christology. Um, I can just tell you my personal yes, please. opinion. Um, wow, Jesus is your savior is, um, I understand how it developed and I respect those who, for whom that is a source, that idea is a source of um, strength for them. For me, it's been used, I guess, as a, um, as a tool of control and um, a way of, of being in the world that is, is part of that human or white supremacy, that human exceptionalism that says, um, you know, these people are in and, and these people are out. You know, this, this species is in that all everybody is is dispensable. Everybody else is dispensable. It's just a very, very dangerous and has been used in dangerous ways. That idea of um, of having a savior who um, through whom is the only um, you know way into some um, eternal life that is beyond this planet. 
it's also very disconnected. You know, what's what's so life-giving, what keeps me in the Christ tradition is, um, or even the Christian tradition, is this incarnation, the incarnation of um, the divine in all things, the incarnation of Jesus on earth as a human being, um, I think is the core of what's so life-giving about that tradition, this tradition. Um, but the idea of being saved for some other world, therefore this world is, um, you know, uh, dispensable or uh, evil or um, something to not identify with is just fundamentally a problem. So, you know, it's worth much longer discussions. And I think there's a way to, um, you know, sensitively have that discussion. But, you know, it's become such a trigger for some people, you know, because it's been so, uh, how do you say it, <laughs> hammered into us <laughs> that uh, it becomes just like an identity that we don't want to question or a worldview is the, that which we don't question. And so it's, 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 you know, taking chits at our very foundational, uh, the very foundation of, of certain religions uh, within the Christian tradition. Um, so I understand why it's sensitive and, um, and I also understand why it's really important to talk about it and to untangle it. Thank you. Thank you for your feedback. Um, <laughs> let's expand on the, the movement of the, the wild church. What exactly are you trying to achieve with, uh, with the movement? Yeah, I think, I think exactly that. It's a worldview shifting, you know, it's a new narrative. It's a new way of, of being in relationship, um, in kindred relationship with the natural world. So spiritual practices need to be developed um, so that we can practice it just as, just as you're wandering in Panama was a practice that now you're continuing and it's, and it's changed um, your relationship in ways. Um, it's that same, it's that same thing. So during the, during the pandemic, we were contacted by, you know, indoor churches who couldn't meet indoors anymore. And they wanted to, you know, learn from the wild church movement. How can we do services outdoors? But what they wanted is how do you get the, you know, the, the, um, what do you call it? The sound system outside? How do we bring the benches outside? It's like, no, this is <laughs> doing regular church outside. It's really, it's dismantling some of the, the, you know, those things like the walls themselves that keep us disconnected. And it's creating new spiritual practices. Um, and what, what I thought was really interesting is when I first started uh, Church of the Wild in 2015, um, I had heard of, of um, forest churches in England, but I, I searched to find anybody else on this continent that was doing anything, and I couldn't find anybody. And, um, and so I said, well, I guess I'm just going to make this up, create this of my own, you know. And I I'd wanted to do some, you know, I'd been questioning things as I was a pastor in the church for years, but I was just like, I'm just going to do it. And so we created a, a sort of a, an order of service, if you will, that began with us gathering in a circle outside, um, having a bit of an orientation of, um, you know, a, a story or a poem or a prayer or something, a song. Um, and then there was an invitation to go outside of the circle and everybody wander solo until they're drawn to some other being or place or element and just to sit there and listen, appreciate, um, listen both to the other as well as to what thoughts and ideas were coming up within themselves and then coming back to the circle and sharing with one another. So it was kind of dismantling even the thing of like the pastor being the only one talking and everybody's listening, like that's not a conversation. Um, and by the way, we don't have time, but conversation is really an important, I think, foundational concept and reality of, of life, not just in church, not just with humans, but just of aliveness. Um, but anyway, so, I, so this little spirit practice is what, what I was doing. And then I started meeting people, other pastors that had left indoor churches and started doing their own thing, thinking they were the only ones um, that were doing this. And as we started talking, like, in fact, the first person I met was somebody that lives um, in, near you in Ontario. And as we talked about it, 
we realized over the months that we were doing almost exactly the same thing. And we had very different influences, very different ways that we had come to this idea. And so as we, as we kept meeting others who had, you know, and at first it was mostly pastors who were leaving indoor churches to start this, um, their, their orders of service were very similar. And so we just kept observing there's something happening here that's bigger than what we're making happen. It's bigger than what we're choosing, that we're part of some larger story of um, uh, awakening, really. Interesting. But I don't know if you're aware that in Africa, there are tribes um, who initiate their um, young boys into adulthood. And one of the tasks is to sit in front of the tree until they see the soul of the tree. Mm-hmm. And they end up hugging the tree and talking to the tree like they are talking to Mother Earth. Yeah. And it's very funny when they come out of trance, they find themselves hugging the tree and mm-hmm. kissing the tree. And the adults are on the, on the side say, okay, he, he passed the, the task. Mm-hmm. It's just unbelievable. Uh, so when you see the and they are under no influence of you know psychedelics or plants yeah. or anything, it's just pure connection. Yes, that's it. And and you know we can see it in cultures that are still indigenous that are still connected with the land. We don't see it as much in cultures like ours that have been disconnected over generations from our indigeneity, our indigenous connection with the land. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't return there. You know, like Robin Wall Kimmerer says, we, I may not be able to be indigenous because my ancestors are all from, you know, Scotland and Ireland, but I can choose to belong to the land and to, you know, the land doesn't belong to me. <laughs> I belong to the land. And so that's a real shift. And it's a shift that needs religion, you know, that needs religious practices, that needs reminders that needs connection and community and um, and encouragement. Yeah, we are just the stewards of the land. And to go back to this connection, we, we need patience. We need to be removed from, you know, social media, TV, and have the patience to, to connect because it won't happen overnight. Right. Our senses relationship. has to sharpen up yeah. in time. So... And it is, it's relationship, it's beyond stewardship even, because stewardship implies that we are like the ones who've got it all figured out, and we're gonna take care of you. It's like, no, it's sacred reciprocity, it's relationship. And so just like if you walk into a coffee shop and you just start sitting, sit down next to somebody and start talking to them and sharing your whole life story, like you don't, it's not how you, <laughs> it's not how it happens. It's little by little, it's little acts of kindness, it's little listening, it's little, you know, drawing deeper and deeper and deeper until you we are like those young boys in in those cultures in Africa, until we are hugging the tree, until we are hugging one another, until we are in actual kindred relationship with one another. It takes yes. time and it takes uh, fidelity and it takes um, little, it takes humility <laughs> and letting go of those ways that we, that we thought we were um, in charge. Yes. Victoria, thank you very much. We are approaching the end of the, the interview. Any final thoughts? Uh, thank you so much for your work and for your uh, commitment for, to this, these messages and the, the work that you're doing. And I'm very grateful to have met you and through you, the people that follow you. Thank you. Thank so you much. very much. Thank you. And uh, to my uh, viewers, thank you for um, watching. Uh, like it, share it. Um, Support me on patreon.com slash Murgan. Download a free copy of my book when you visit my website. And until next time, love and gratitude.